You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. When you stop to notice, you realize people are buried everywhere. Every tourist destination has a cemetery, from New York City to Hong Kong to the Isle of Iona. Some tourist destinations are tombs, the Great Pyramids of Egypt or the Taj Mahal or the Royal Mounds of Gamla Uppsala in Sweden, for instance. There are permanent residents in museums, houses of worship, ghost towns, battlegrounds, even in national parks. You may have already visited someone's grave without giving it a second thought if you've been to the Pompeii or Westminster Abbey or the USS Arizona Memorial in Pearl Harbor. But why would anyone go out of their way to visit a graveyard intentionally? In addition to the fascinating stories they contain, cemeteries can be open-air sculpture parks full of -of one-of-a-kind artwork. They provide habitats for birds and wildlife, as well as arboretums and gardens of surprising beauty. Cemeteries appeal to art lovers, amateur sociologists, bird watchers, master gardeners, historians, hikers, genealogists, picnickers, and anyone who just wants to stop and smell the roses. Lauren Rhodes is the author of Wish You Were Here, Adventures in Cemetery Travel, the Space Opera Trilogy in the Wake of the Templars from Nightshade Books, The Dangerous Type, Kill by Numbers, and No More Heroes. She edited the nonfiction magazine Morbid Curiosity, a collection of some of her favorite essays drawn from that magazine. Morbid Curiosity Cures the Blues, True Stories of the Unsavory, Unwise, Unorthodox, and Unusual. Her new book is 199 Cemeteries to See Before You Die. Thank you for joining me, Lauren. Thank you. I am reminded that we often hear about the silent majority, but there's a different silent majority that is actually... (laughs) A lot more of them than there are of us. And there's a lot of interesting places for them to be. One of the most amazing things about this book is how much it takes us not just to different places where you travel, but also to different uh, thoughts and ideas. There are so many associations that spring up with death. It's kind of amazing. (laughs) Well, it kind of informs everything in life, if we're doing it right, I guess. (laughs) That's absolutely true. And cemeteries, when I first saw the title cemeteries, I just thought essentially of the place that's down close to where I live in Santa Cruz, I used to kind of, it's like off the shortcut. So you get off the freeway and you're driving through some trees and all of a sudden you come up on an old cemetery. It's just a bunch of gravestones. Is that evergreen? Yeah. Yeah, I love that place. It's really beautiful. But as you point out, cemeteries are, are, have a lot of variety and you can see a lot of history in cemeteries. What drew you in the very first place to write about traveling to cemeteries? Well, I started visiting cemeteries by accident. and, and uh, What kind of accident? Well, oh, it was a uh, travel accident. We were intending to go to Barcelona. It was our first time in Europe. My husband and I were going to go over, and he was going to do sound for a, a machine performance. And as we were, <clears throat> excuse me, as we were flying, the uh, first Gulf War broke out. So we kept missing connections and missing connections. We ended up in London, which had never been anywhere near where we intended to go. 
And this was the day before cell phones, so we couldn't get in touch with the people we were traveling to meet. So we stayed for a week uh, with no guidebooks or maps or any kind of plans. And uh, we were in the, the bookstore in Victoria Station, and I found this incredibly beautiful collection of photographs of this old cemetery. And I sort of expected that would be as far as it went, but the last day of our trip, we were trying to figure out what to do, and my husband said, let's go see Highgate Cemetery. He'd rather do that than the Tower of London. So we went to see this amazing Victorian cemetery. In January, it was cold and uh, blustery, and we got there, and the gatekeeper let us in. He said we were the only people in the graveyard, you know, have fun. And uh, Karl Marx is buried there. So this, this guy said, well, you know, I'm not saying that you wouldn't be interested in seeing him, but if you are, Karl Marx is down this way and gave us directions. But on the way, we found all these wonderful sculptures, um, angels uh, standing over graves, and some of them were broken, or their wings were broken, hands were broken. Some of them were covered in ivy, and it was just so romantically beautiful. And I, it was the first time I understood that you know even stone doesn't last, last forever. It's um, it's all going to crumble. And that's beautiful, you know, so you've got to seize what you've got right now. And, and from that point, it just started, you know, first we would stop in at a cemetery if there was one along the way. And now it's kind of to the, well, we're going to Barcelona. What should we see? That was our, our last summer our trip. We finally got to Barcelona 20 years later. And what cemetery did you visit in Barcelona? Uh, what was it like? Uh, it's called Poblenou. And I'm probably mispronouncing that because my Catalan isn't good. But um, it's the first cemetery in Europe that was built outside city gates. Prior to that time, they were all built inside churchyards. Mm -hmm. But uh, Napoleon started encouraging people to build their cemeteries outside the gates. And this predates that. So it's this beautiful old cemetery on the edge of town between Barcelona and the sea. And it is full of these amazing Gothic uh, mausoleums and statuary, lots of angels. And the, the one, the key one is the figure of death. It's in the book. Look him up real quick. Um, death is leaning over this young man who's on his, he's been reduced to his knees and giving him a kiss on the cheek. And it's larger than life. It's set in such a place you could look we're going to walk all the way around it. And the thing that amazed me most is the detail in the back where you can see the knobs on the spine. Um, it's just really, really beautiful and not anything you'd see in an American cemetery. You know, when you were describing that cemetery to me, and I think this is kind of a, a theme, it's, it's almost like a, a, and really, that really is amazing. It's incredible. Uh, that cemeteries are, in a sense, art galleries. And, but the really a truly a people's art gallery yeah. where the artists aren't the point where the person who's buried there are individual statements and yeah. that's an interesting I had never thought of that perspective before yeah it's one of the things that amazed me is that there is this incredible museum caliber art that's out in nature you know it's out in the elements for anybody to walk up and take a look at and in most cases, it's free. You just mm -hmm. stroll on up and take a look. And just 
exquisite, thoughtful pieces. Um, the photographs that you have of Highgate are amazing. Yeah. It's so gorgeous. You talked about it as your first place. I mean, it, it's just these places really look almost like movie sets. Yeah. Well, Highgate was a movie set <laughs> in several instances. And I, um, I just heard from a friend who was going to be there uh, in the next month, I think, and she said it was close. They're going to be filming in there again. But um, you can't take a bad picture in there. It's so beautiful. So. Um, I thought we might start. <laughs> I got sidetracked, and that's kind of the I'm point sorry, of this that's book. No, no, no. That's, I am. No, was with a, a cemetery, arguably the world's most famous, and that shockingly, I've actually been there, uh, Cemetriere du Père Cachin. Père Lachaise. Père Lachaise, yes, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, it destroyed my feet with those cobblestones. Yes, yeah, <laughs> many ankles <laughs> twisted there. <laughs> but it's an amazing place, and I think for me, there's lots of famous people buried there, and their graves are, of course, amazing and and uh, striking, emotionally powerful, mm -hmm. Jim Morrison. Uh, but what I was most entranced by were the many almost anonymous crypts yeah. where you'd have like a little box, like a, almost like a closet, and then at the back there would be stained glass that the light would mm -hmm. shine through onto into your face or onto the side of the thing. These were such beautiful pieces of art. Yeah. Well, Père Lachaise is important because it's kind of the turning point taking us away from church arts. Okay. To, well, to describe what we that. Think of. Well, um, now when you think of a cemetery, it's mm -hmm. spacious and it's large. There's room to move around and there are paths or roadways or whatever. Uh, trees. Mm -hmm. Medieval graveyards didn't have trees. Medieval graveyards had people, you know, buried side by side by side by side by side. <sighs> and headstones, if there were any, were not in rows. They were just kind of wherever the bodies were planted. And many medieval graveyards are so small that people are buried, you know, level on top of level. They just throw more dirt on, put another layer of bodies. So Père Lachaise, in contrast, is huge. And, you know, it's not very big compared to modern cemeteries. But it's it was such a change that they were going to set aside this large piece of land outside the city limits where people could have permanent graves and permanent markers. And prior to that, only the wealthy did. But the, the middle class, the bourgeoisie, could have uh, a monument to their family and all be buried there together for generations. That was a you know, hugely influential thing. Contrasted with the, I guess, comparatively nearby catacombs. Did yeah. you visit the catacombs? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I spent my birthday there one year. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's I, the first time I went, I was a little hesitant because mm -hmm. it's the remains of six million bodies it, where you come face to face with the skulls and, you know, the reality that somebody lived inside that at one point. Um, but it's beautiful in that, that it, it's, it's so simple that's we're all going to end up like that you know maybe not on display but um, that's the end for all of us and so you know what are you going to do now <laughs> and and all among all the uh, different burial grounds that they've taken these bones from and stacked them in the catacombs there are plaques that say that in in French and all these beautifully poetic ways about 
you don't know the hour of your death, so what are you going to do with the hours until it comes? You know, over and over and over, just reiterating, you know, seize the moment. And I, I just think that's incredibly beautiful. Certainly one of the many things that this book will make you think more than once. Uh, for me, uh, one of the most powerful burial grounds I ever saw were some of the mounds. I'm not sure if I saw Sutton Who, but I, I was out in Wales in the countryside and, and saw these mounds, and there's just such a sense of antiquity to yeah. them. And I think that's also a really important part of cemeteries and this book, the sense of deep time that they give us, which is something that it really, it's very striking, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I saw mounds for the first time going out to Stonehenge. Mm -hmm. And at that point, know, 20 years ago or so, they they suspected that Stonehenge was a burial ground, but they didn't have any evidence yet. So on our way, there were these barrows on the hills. Oh, and those are amazing. Yeah, yeah, we walked up, We when we took it, we took the tour where you walk up to Stonehenge oh, the way cool. they do. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. You yeah. walk past all the mounds. Yeah, and the guides just kind of blew it off. Yeah, you know. Probably some king is buried in there. Uh, but, you know, time, time in England is different than time here. Mm -hmm. You know, it, San Francisco is a really young city comparatively to, to Stonehenge. So, you know, a barrow for them is, uh, that's um, dark ages. Compared, <laughs> you know, Stonehenge is prehistoric. This is really old. But to me, I just thought that was amazing. And they, they're heritage sites. They can't be opened or messed with. So all the things that are in there are still in there, whatever they are. Well, it's so great because now we know they've, they've actually been preserved to the time not long hence when technology will allow us to understand every single damn thing that's under the ground yeah. and what it is and what it's made of and why it's there, how long it's been there. Yeah. You mentioned San Francisco. Mm -hmm. We may be a young city, but we have some powerful places here. Yeah. Uh, from the graveyard city of Colma to the uh, one of the places you mentioned, the AIDS Memorial. Yeah. So talk talk about that. That's recent, but that's the AIDS Memorial. That's such a a a wonderful example of how history, culture, art, e politics, everything comes together yeah. in the graveyard. One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot, and I don't have any answers for it yet, but um, the move now is toward cremation mm -hmm. and scattering, mm -hmm. which is beautiful and can be meaningful for the families, but it's not going to leave any record. And, and the thing that got me thinking about this is you can go to a graveyard in the U.S. and see the, all the headstones from 1918, from the flu epidemic. And you can see how powerful this was, that it mm -hmm. swept across the country. It killed hundreds and hundreds of people. And there's a record there. With the AIDS epidemic, there isn't any record because they were, uh, the people who died of AIDS were forbidden to be buried in some cemeteries. They wouldn't have them because their bodies might be contaminated. They couldn't be um, taken to many funeral homes. That's not true in California, but other places. And their families didn't want them. So that there was a huge rise in cremation in during the AIDS epidemic of these people who, you know, weren't even sure they were going to have any friends left to mourn them once they were gone. So out of all of that, 
the AIDS Grove was developed in, in Golden Gate Park. And uh, it took a while, but it's now a national monument to victims of AIDS. And they, they've just, in the last month, opened a, a monument to hemophiliacs who died of blood transfusions before the tests were good enough to, to detect AIDS in, in the blood. So it, it's evolving. But I think it's an incredibly powerful place. And technically, it's not a cemetery. Nobody's actually buried there. But it holds a, a couple of spaces for people to have memorial services, and there are ashes scattered there. So in, in my definition, if there, it, I, I define a cemetery as any place that people have or are buried or are scattered or there are bones. Uh, so that's why it includes museums and churches and other things. But you, you used a phrase that I think that is incredibly important in this book, power of place. Yeah. And, and that's what these are. These are the most powerful places on the earth for humans yeah. where we no longer live. Uh, and I think for me, when you read this book and see these pictures, we, we realize just how powerful these places are. And also any vision of any cemetery will take any human who has been to a funeral or a cemetery back to that place. Mm -hmm. And so this book creates a kind of an interesting dissonance for us, showing us these beautiful places where we might go and reminding us of the places filled with sorrow where we have been. And that's an, a fantastic thing for a book to do. Thank you. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, when you set this out, did you think, okay, this is a travel guide, I'm going to show a bunch of pictures, or did you, how much, I mean, the writing tells us a bit about this and the choice selection. You thought a lot about the implications of death, which, as you say, it informs life, so yeah. that's a big deal. Yeah. Well, and I wanted to make it as inclusive as possible mm -hmm. because even though we all share that, every human shares that same end, we all deal with it in different ways, mm -hmm. and culturally, we deal with it in different ways. And I, I just find that really beautiful. I mean, it's it's one of those things. Humans have been dying since they were humans. <laughs> exactly. And we still don't have a, a grasp on it, mm -hmm. you know, or a ritual that fits every situation. And so, I think that's amazing. When you uh, put together this book. Uh, you've been blogging for a while, mm -hmm. so this c came out of your your blog, and you have a, a cemetery of the week feature. How do you determine the cemetery oh. of the week? <laughs> is, is it uh, you throw a card in the in the jar? Yeah, it. it I have a long list of places I want to write about, but um, this most recent cemetery of the week uh, on Wednesday, I decided to pick one from the book, and so I got to thinking about well. I have two from, from St. Augustine, Florida. I should check in and make sure how they came through the hurricanes. And it turns out they didn't come through the hurricanes well at all. So both of these are incredibly fragile old places. Uh, one is the old Catholic cemetery that may date as far back as the Spanish occupation of Florida. There, there aren't any stones or records that go back that far. And the other one is the Huguenot Cemetery, which, uh, officially dates to the American occupation of, of Florida, but it, it also predates. The Spaniards buried anyone who was non-Catholic in this 
basically potter's field, um, but without a monument because they felt that if you had died outside the church, you might as well be erased. So there's no record of who those people were. But once the Americans took over, uh, one of the Protestant churches took it over and took it under its wing and, and maintained it for years. But it's been closed for a long time, probably a hundred years, I'd have to check. But uh, beautiful, and it's only open one Saturday afternoon a month. The Friends of the Cemetery open it up and, and give tours and encourage people to donate for preservation. So I got in touch with them to see how the cemetery had survived the hurricanes. And one of the enormous centuries-old magnolias came down across tombstones and you know, tore up the ground. And it's in pretty rough shape. So they're going to try and get it open the third Saturday of October, as usual, and encourage people to come in and help clean up and donate to the, the preservation and restoration of the stones. But, you know, they... It just underlines again to me that cemeteries are fragile, that, that these are not going to live forever unless people care for them and step up and take care of them. So uh, that's a long way of answering your question. But, it, you know, if something's in the news, then I try and focus on that. Um, I do a Black History Month in uh, cemeteries of the, the week and um, for the military histories, like, Veterans Day, I try and do a military cemetery. So. It's, you know, you were talking about uh, how beautiful they are. And one of the things that I, I realize is, is how, in many ways, cemeteries are parks that, you know, are fortunately very hard to mess with. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and they're so, so um, when you, uh, part of a cemetery, we just think of, you know, you bury people there, but there's a lot of maintenance that goes on. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it is a park. Somebody has to mow the lawn. Yeah, <laughs> yeah lawn mowers change cemeteries. Um, mm -hmm. One of the ones in the book is the... Really? Uh, yeah, the Greenery bury ground, Burying Ground in Boston, mm -hmm. where uh, Samuel Adams and uh, Benjamin Franklin's parents and a bunch of revolutionary war patriots are buried there. Uh, now those headstones are all in a nice straight line. <laughs> and it goes back to, you know, when they planted people, they planted people wherever. Now, with lawn mowing, a lot of the old cemeteries have had their headstones lined up, so it's a whole lot easier to just run the mower straight down there. And you know, <laughs> The bodies are in there somewhere, but they're not connected to the monuments anymore. Well, that's interesting. I didn't. I never knew that. Yeah. Another dual use of cemeteries is museums. Westminster. I this is I again. The the power of this book is to make us think about stuff we would not ordinarily think about. But then when you think about it, you say, "Boy, I should keep that in my little tiny brain." <laughs> well, Westminster is amazing, and you go in, and it's so jammed full of statuary, mortuary statuary that it's hard to move around, <laughs> but it, it is the museum, I don't know how to put it, the pantheon maybe of, of England, mm -hmm. the, you know, kings and queens and poets and English warriors. history is buried yeah, there. everyone is there. It's amazing to see. And when you talk about history, I mean, Many, I, I had never thought about it this way. The Valley of the Kings in Egypt yeah. is a cemetery. That's a, 
I mean, we want to go there and see that stuff anyway. Yeah. That's a pretty impressive monument. Well, it, people don't realize the Taj Mahal mm -hmm. is I a tomb. Didn't, I did not know that either, which yeah. is... Uh, which That's is, what it was built for. Uh, I, I guess so. So we should uh, start being suspicious of extremely ornate buildings that go up. They may just end up uh, containing a bunch of dead exactly. folks. Exactly. Well, and um, I was at Yosemite with my parents there to see waterfalls and trees, right, as you go to Yosemite. And I had no idea. They have a cemetery right there in the valley. It's it's a really nice little cemetery. I, I love that cemetery. And I thought, wow, Yosemite National Parks, as as you mentioned. I mean, cemeteries are everywhere. And People have died everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, strangely enough. Yeah, nothing will stop us. The only thing that will stop us is death, and it will stop us wherever we happen to be exactly. at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the attractions of cemeteries in some ways is who's buried there. Mm -hmm. So you might be in some little town in Kentucky, Ketchum. Is it Kentucky? Uh, is Idaho. It? Idaho. Oh, yeah, you're right. Ketchum, I got it. I That caught my eye because I familiar with a writer named Jack Ketchum who mm -hmm. writes not dead yet though not dead yet but he writes some fairly severe mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, horror fiction who do we find there but Ernest Hemingway yeah I yeah mean, just amazing well and he has a long deep history in Ketchum once I started to research it uh, I'm going to blank but I I think it's for whom the bell tolls was written there. Yeah, I think that's what yeah, I remember and, that. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, his his last home was in Ketchum, and you know, we think of him in Cuba or Southern Florida, or the Keys. You know, Paris. Yeah, Hemingway traveled widely, but he ended up in Ketchum, which is a beautiful place. It's, it's near Sun Valley, and yeah. so there's all this skiing and nature, which makes sense. But I love the fact that his grave is surrounded by trees and people leave whiskey bottles on it. You know, they, they, they still have a relationship with him, even though he's been gone all these years. Well, that's an important, important aspect that I had never thought about. That he said, cemeteries give us a place where we can have a relationship yeah. with people who are no longer among us. And we can really have relationships. You can have conversations with them. I mean, uh, I'm not diagnosed as mentally ill, but I do have lots of conversations with people who are no longer with us. Mm -hmm. And uh, the place where they are buried, or any place where people are buried, facilitates that interface. And this is a, I mean, again, this is the place where the greatest mystery that mankind has that it has, has not yet solved, that's where the interface for that. Exactly. And I, I think it's really important um, to have a place of pilgrimage, you know, a place. That's not where you live, that you can exactly. go. Exactly. Um, I have a, during the AIDS epidemic, I had a friend who died at home and uh, was cremated, and we scattered his ashes all over everywhere. And so there isn't a space where I can go to talk to him. You know, I'm not comfortable talking to him in his house. So uh, I miss that. I mm -hmm. miss having... Oh, I don't know, a direct place where we could connect. Um, it's important to me that my brother's buried in the graveyard by my parents' house, and so I can go down there and talk to him and have a beer or whatever. Um, 
I don't think he's there. I don't think he waits there every day, you know, for me to just stop in once a year or whatever. But, but it's important to me psychologically to, to have that place. And I've, I feel the same about um, visiting Ray Bradbury's grave down in L.A. Wow. Uh, his, his work was really influential. I met the man, yeah, yeah. several times. He's an important guy. Yeah. I've, never, I've not been there. Where is, where is he? He's down in Westwood, which okay. is where Marilyn Monroe is buried. And wow. Hugh Hefner will end up. Um, and it's a really simple red granite stone on Bradbury's grave, but it credits him as the author of Fahrenheit 451, which I'm, I'm sure is probably his most important book, but for me it was The Martian Chronicles. Oh, so. yeah. So I met him once in life, and he was very kind. And, uh, you know, I was a starry-eyed fangirl. <laughs> Um, but it was important for me to be able to stand at his grave and, and thank him for all that he'd done for me. Gratitude is an emotion that I think we need more of, and graveyards uh, facilitate that. You know, um, the power of the, these places is so palpable to us that it can create, you know, draw forth the emotions we really need. And mm-hmm. I, I think that, that one of the services this book really does is to draw up those kind of thoughts to to bring back the power of compassion into the conversation, which is something <laughs> we need to talk a little bit more yeah. about. Yeah. It's, there's something about standing in a place that's magnificently beautiful. And they are pretty much without doubt without exception magnificently beautiful why do you think that is i mean i don't know um you know i i was first drawn to them because i get easily overwhelmed especially when we're traveling my husband is one of those people who will see every restaurant in town before he decides where he wants to eat so he'll walk (laughs) me until i can't take another step so originally we started visiting cemeteries as kind of a place to just decompress a little bit Mm -hmm. but then they're so beautiful you're not only decompressed but recharged you know kind of filled up with awe and beauty and and inspired to go out and you know share that somehow inspire other people so I can't I can't explain why they are so beautiful, but it is incredible to me that even you know the tiny little graveyards in the California Gold Country, um, you know where the monuments are falling back to earth and and the original wooden headboards are losing their lettering and you can't read things. The graveyards need a graveyard. Exactly, but even. Even there, you know, there are wildflowers and the birds sing and the breezes blow and make the grass rustle. They're powerfully beautiful. Well, it's an interesting place because I I was just thinking, you have, in general, in cemeteries, the both the complete absence of humanity if you're there, but the utter and permanent presence yeah. of humanity it's it's the human puzzle in one place exactly and one of the things i really like about them that hopefully the book captures is that the stories are so powerful exactly that's what i was thinking too that a cemetery is in a sense like a, a library well, it's exactly like a library and and sometimes you need a guide who can 
tell you the stories mm -hmm. of the people buried there. But there's a lot you can learn just from the iconography or the, the epitaphs, the things that people choose to make permanent on stone to you remember have, someone. Do you have a favorite epitaph or story oh. or, you know, I guess word thing <laughs> that you found engraved in stone, wood, I should metal? I should make a list because epitaphs are the thing that I know least about. Mm. Um, the title of my essay collection is Wish You Were Here, mm -hmm. which <laughs> I collect, yeah. <laughs> Which is a funny thing to say about yeah. cemeteries, right? Yeah. I collect these um, vintage cemetery postcards. Mm. And a lot of them were advertising postcards. But a fair number of them, and my favorites, are the ones that people wrote and sent back home. You know, I was on my trip, and we stopped off in this beautiful place. And a surprising number of the cem uh, these cemetery postcards say, wish you were here on them. <laughs> Which, you know, could either be... This is a beautiful place. I wish you were here with me or maybe permanently. I don't know. But I've started to see that on tombstones now. Wish you were here. Really? And so Is this new? Yeah, it's just new in trend. the last little bit. I've I've seen several stones with it. And so I'm not sure exactly how to read that, but I I, I think that's really funny. Where our government goes to get buried is the congressional <laughs> Cemetery. Oh yeah, I I never knew there was a congressional mm -hmm. cemetery. Yeah, it it was in really sad shape for a while, mm -hmm. um, neglected, and kind of falling apart. And the the one was rescued by dog walkers. The dog walkers started collecting money to walk really? their dogs in the cemetery and started to pay for uh, the mowing and the maintenance and and. That now they do uh, charity races and other things to you know bring people into the cemetery to to take care of it and it's it's been brought back. You know, um, I was thinking too the how amazing examples of our buried cultures cemeteries are because. We here in America might think you know you go to the mortuary and. Pine box, six feet down, flat headstone, done, done. But that's just, that's our, you know, actually that's last century's cultural right. moment. And are there any cemeteries that you went to where the cultural differences between uh, our 20th century America and wherever you were really stood out and just said, wow, this is just amazing? Well, um I haven't been there. It's on my, my must-do list. But the Mary Cemetery in Romania, um, all the graves are marked with these hand-carved monuments, wooden monuments that are painted bright colors. And each one is specific to the person buried there, the carving, and often the epitaph, too. And so uh, some of them run to, you know, yeah, I was a drunk, but he was a lot of fun to be around, or... You know, she worked herself to death in the kitchen trying to feed her children. Or, But they're all uh, in poems that are loving and mocking and funny. And, you know, it's our, especially Protestant graveyards in America, are very sober and, and 
serious. <laughs> right. And, you, know, you, you treat this occasion with the, the seriousness it it deserves. And yeah, but the Mary Cemetery is welcoming and funny. And apparently now tour buses pull up at it. I don't know. But. Wow. How interesting. Yeah. You know, I was wondering, uh, this is, uh, is it legal to have yourself stuffed? I think it depends on where you are. Mm-hmm. I, I saw, yeah. I haven't followed up on it yet, but I've, I saw recently that there is a place now that will preserve tattoos. Mm-hmm. So you can have your full body tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> I for your, you know, <laughs> handed down to your children or whatever. But, um, but I don't know about stuffed. I, as I understand it, and mm-hmm. I'm no expert, but the government wants to know where you are. Mm-hmm. You know, either you're refrigerated or you're buried or you've been cremated, but somehow you were not around to uh, disturb the living, I guess. <laughs> So I don't know. So I can. So my plan to have myself stuffed and put on wheels in my house so I can remind my kids <laughs> is, is problematic. Roll you out for parties. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in, when I first came up with this idea, I was going to have cassettes mounted mm. in me. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, hey, I can have a motion sensor. So oh, when somebody walks great. close to me, and you know, a digital chip. Hi. But I guess that's not popular no, yet. No, I have a friend with a full body tattoo, and, and he's kind of interested in becoming drumheads eventually. Really? Yeah, isn't that a beautiful idea? What a now? Why? That is that is beautiful. We've been burying people here in America, uh, European style, since 1607. Yeah. Jamestown. And mm-hmm. talk, did you visit Jamestown? I have, but it's been years. I was a kid. So I don't. I have to say that the churchyard didn't make a big impression on me then. You know, I, I was as I was glancing through the book, I saw Hollywood, and I and then it was Virginia. Yeah. And, and there you have ninety foot tall pyramids for Confederate soldiers. Mm-hmm. All cemeteries in the news. Yeah. How, how are they dealing with the the fallout with I, this? I haven't heard how that one has been dealing with it, but another one in the book is uh, Forest Hill in Madison, mm-hmm. which has a, it's the northernmost Confederate plot in the U.S. because there was a prison camp where the uh, University of Wisconsin football stadium is now, mm-hmm. was a Confederate prison camp and had a number of soldiers die there. So they're all buried in the cemetery, which was, uh, has several different military plots. There's a Union plot and a a general veterans plot and this Confederate plot because they were buried separately from everyone else. And it was um, not very well cared for until a widow from New Orleans moved up there and started taking care of it. So each of the graves is uh, marked with one of the soldiers' names and then she is also buried there. Her grave is marked. But in addition, there's a, a big granite monument kind of in in the wrong place in the cemetery where uh, it thanks her for taking care of the boys and it thanks the boys you know, who are innocent victims of this war. And it was placed in the 1930s, I believe, by the uh, Daughters of the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. So it was 
kind of a Jim Crow monument. Right. You know, where sure. suddenly they're they're taking these soldiers, some of whom were teenagers and probably can't be held responsible for the institution of slavery, but now making them heroes, innocent victims of, of this war, which they were not. They were trying to withdraw, break the United States. So the um, that cemetery has been dealing with moving things. They're not going to change the plot. They're going to leave the plot there. But that monument is out of place and out of time, and so it's going to be removed. It's um, the the politics of of burial yeah. and the cultural politics too, because well, this is you know uh, this is all happening in the last six months. It's, right. It's pretty interesting how. Uh, deep cemeteries and death reaches into our culture. Yeah. Well, you know, we think of cemeteries as kind of monolithic. You know, mm -hmm. they're historical and unchanging. But what changes is our relationship to them and exactly. how we think about them. Uh -huh. And that's what this book captures so yeah. well. Um, how is the underwater oh, cemetery in, in, in Florida doing? Do have you heard about I that? I haven't heard. I, they're deep enough that Neptune. Is yes, it, yeah. the uh, the Neptune it's, Reef. They should have ridden out the the hurricane. Fine. They mm -hmm. should have been. The storms should have gone over the top, and they're, I think, forty five feet deep. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, far enough deep that the ocean should have been fairly still down there. Um, but it's an amazing place, and I that was one I discovered in National Geographic. Um, they, this sculptor has partnered with the Neptune Society, who's the biggest provider of cremation in the U.S., to make this artificial reef where they will take people's cremains, mix them into cement, and then um, mold them into different sculptures. And so there's well, lions. That's a beautiful idea. It's what incredible. an amazing idea. Yeah, and and not only is it lovely to see and kind of you know in a Atlantean <laughs> monuments kind of way. Scuba dive to see it? No, I don't dive. But it's one of those things where I, I re was reading about it and people have been learning to dive so they can go down and see it because the corals have moved in. There's this. You know, huge range of fish, unexpectedly large range of fish that live there now, and you know it's it's becoming part of the ocean, like it belongs there. It's, it's a it's, park it's underwater. Exactly. <laughs> How amazing! You mentioned the Arizona Memorial in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. You know, it strikes me that that is such a, a powerful reminder to take us to a very specific place in a very specific time. And now I think that's an interesting, that's an interesting spin on the cemetery since in general, they are, they are general purpose. And, and so talk about uh, just the, the specific cemeteries created with a specific purpose in mind. Well, that one, I, it was another case where I didn't realize it was a graveyard until mm -hmm. I got there. Oh, wow. Um, I knew the ships had sank. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize they couldn't retrieve everyone. And so one of the stories that the docent was telling while I was there is that they could hear people trapped in some of the compartments under the surface tapping, you know, trying to get someone's attention to come and rescue them. 
but they couldn't get into them in time. And so people, you know, not only died in the attack, but died eventually afterwards and are still on the ship. And so um, the bodies that could be recovered were, excuse me, were buried in the Punchbowl Cemetery, but a lot of them couldn't be recovered. And so they still exist on the ship. But then um, survivors of the Arizona can now be cremated and have their ashes placed in the, I think it's the gun turret. Uh, so it continues to be a cemetery, even though uh, the event it commemorates is long over with. And there's a sense of, yeah, it's a tourist site. You know, you go to the national park and they ferry you out there, and it's a bright, glorious Hawaiian day in the water is shimmering with sunlight and all of that. Uh, but it's it's a very somber place. And so watching the shift as people, you know, were tourists and then know actually they're visiting a church or a little chapel um, and, and facing death, you know, it's not a big, uh, it's not a Disneyland ride, you know, you have to take this seriously. And so I, I think that's really interesting and it, it compares to me to Hiroshima. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Where, since we're about to start lobbing nukes uh, in yeah. the Middle East or in North Korea, behooves us to take a look at what happened the last time around. Yeah, and the the museum at Hiroshima is very careful not to blame America. It's it focuses on lots of places, lots of countries were trying to develop nuclear weapons and whoever had them first was going to use them first. So so it's not pointing out, you know, the Americans are terrible and they killed hundreds of thousands of our people. Uh, it, it takes responsibility. You know, if we had developed them first, the Japanese would have dropped them first. Whoever got there first was going to unleash them. And, you know, I've kind of grown up in the specter of nuclear war. So I was prepared for, you know, lots of American bashing or whatever, but I didn't see that at all. And uh, Interesting. The, the most the most beautiful thing happened. I, mean, I was so completely overwhelmed by the museum. Um, one of the cases has uh, eyeglasses and dented water bottles and, and strips of skin, the only things that were found of these people oh, who were, were killed. And I was looking for a place where I could sit down and cry because I was just so overwhelmed by this place. Um, and my husband speaks a little Japanese. Now he speaks more, but at that point only a little. And there were school kids everywhere. And I thought, you know, the last thing these kids need is to see this American woman, you know, sobbing. <laughs> I, I don't need them to feel bad for me because I feel bad enough. But um, one of the kids came over to my husband and asked to shake his hand. And so my husband spoke to the kid in Japanese. And all of these Japanese schoolboys lit up, stood in a circle around him, and everybody shook his hand. And, and it was this beautiful moment of, you know, yes, our, our countries have done terrible things to each other, but we're still people. And, you know, we can still find a point of connection. And I didn't get that sense that the at the Arizona Memorial. It's very much focused on the, you know, they swarmed down on us and killed us in our sleep. And, and that is true. Mm -hmm. But the American fleet was massed there. 
they were prepared for war. They were soldiers. They weren't school kids. Exactly. And so, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen with this this current thing. There, there's. I hope cooler heads can prevail. Yes. Well, I think that uh, for me, you know, as I read this book and started thinking about all the, the you know, so many military cemeteries and, and that, I mean, this book is, a, is a, a very somber contemplation of what actually is the goal of war. Right. And that's a pretty scary thought. Well, I, I would really like to see politicians stand in a cemetery. If they're going to declare war, go stand in a military cemetery and make it clear what you're proposing. That's yeah. a not a, you know, that would be, if somebody were to stand in a military cemetery and declare war, that that's a very different statement than standing on the podium of the White House right. or, or steps to declare a war. That's right. that's a fascinating yeah. idea. I think it should be uh, get the Congress on that one. <laughs> Good. <laughs> the word necropolis mm -hmm. is a city of the dead. Uh, I think I referred to Colma. Our local mm -hmm. Colma is I, certainly qualifies, but there are. Uh, not the only one. We have them in uh, Glasgow in Canada, too. Yeah. Uh, Glasgow is such an interesting place. That Doesn't that look amazing? Uh, it's, that's that's it's amazing. on my list of places I need to go. Yeah, Glasgow is beautiful. We, we went there. We did not visit the cemetery, but we, mm -hmm. <laughs> I would now. Now. I, I think that's one of the, the aspects of this book is that no matter where you go, you're likely to see a cemetery. And after I read this book... I mean, that might be one of the first places I would want to go in any place just because that's a place where a I repository so. of beauty yeah. and humanity. Mm -hmm. And I think that we could use more of that, eh? Well, it's just um, the, the sense of a necropolis, mm -hmm. you know, that's so beautiful. Is what would the dead do in a city? And enjoy the beauty, I guess. I don't know. I, you know they probably have deep things to think about, too. You uh, take us to South Africa at the Avalon Cemetery where it's crowded. And I was thinking if uh, Glasgow has an Acropolis, uh, Avalon's an apartment. Yes. Yeah. It's to the point now that it's so full, they're burying people three deep. Mm -hmm. So the first grave is the expensive one because it's the deepest, but then each successive grave you know, once you've paid for the plot, you could be buried on top of your father oh. or whatever. And so, so the families are stacked there it, just because land is at a premium and people you know, can only travel so far on public transit. So you can't put a graveyard beyond where people can reach. But the thing I loved about Avalon is that um, it has a really strong since it's tied into the history of apartheid and so mm -hmm. victims of the struggle are buried there and their their graves are now monuments to the struggle and and a place for people to commit themselves to moving forward history after the fact exactly what an interesting idea and i had never before till this moment considered how much 
cemeteries are themselves history books. We talked about their mean stories, but they are also history. I mean, there's a lot of cultural history. Yeah. There's a lot of civic history. We decided to put this here because it was outside the city limits, you know, 300 years later, that cemetery is in the middle right. of Paris. Right. <laughs> so, and when you're walking in there and thinking this used to be outside the city limits and now you're surrounded by the city, yeah. that tells you a whole bunch. Yeah, well, even um, Brooklyn, mm -hmm. uh, the Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, uh, when they built that, you know, it was a big adventure to go out there. People would go and um, they'd take the, the streetcar out from the city in Manhattan and they go picnic or court or you know read poetry enjoy the the sculpture and the artwork and the you know bird song and all of that but but also live there you know it was it was a perfectly reasonable thing to do on a on a beautiful day was go to the cemetery and enjoy it and that led directly to central park mm. because that was so popular and so many people went there. They spent so much money, you know, going out there and buying their picnics and all of that, that Manhattan thought, what can we do to, to get some of that back? To compete. Right. So <laughs> they, they built Central Park through the middle of town. Wow. What a Isn't that amazing? Yes. You know, I mean, it, I, Golden Gate Park is a, a fixture that's been there forever, but mm -hmm. it's directly inspired by this cemetery in Brooklyn. Wow. You know, uh, one of the cemeteries I thought was just amazing to look at was the one in Hong Kong. Oh, and isn't then, that incredible? I mean, it's so perfect. You think, you think of Hong Kong, you think of this, you know, stacked metropolis, all apartments. Where else would the cemetery be but in the middle of those apartments? Yeah, and it's stacked it's up the hillside. Up the hillside, and, you too. Know, it looks like part of it. I mean, what's the difference between the living and the dead? The the, the living are more expensive to maintain. <laughs> Marginally. We need more resources. Yeah, we need more resources. Yeah. No, I love that place because, you know, I, I as I started researching it, I assumed it was going to be a colonial graveyard, right? Mm -hmm. that, that it would be the British colonial monuments and, and history. There's a large element of the Eurasian population, um, you know, who were originally very. Um, my brain is starting to fade. Um, the Eurasians were looked down on, and mm -hmm. and slowly became more able to take control of their own society, right? The society that they grew up in. And so they have some of the grandest monuments, which I think is really amazing. And then once you poke around, there are all kinds of different nationalities. I mean, it reflects the, the international culture, I guess, of, of Hong Kong. But there was so much more to it than I first thought. Where are you headed next? What is this um, next cemetery you're going to visit? And are you going to – you'll be traveling to – discuss the book with yeah, your I'm readers. Yeah, I'm on a book tour. So uh, are you going to take advantage of that and visit some cemeteries? I am. Um, probably more than I know right now because <laughs> they, they kind of present themselves to me. But uh, I'm on a mission. Uh, the, the end of the book tour is at uh, Dark Delicacies in Burbank. Burbank, yeah. Which is not far from uh, Forest Lawn, Hollywood Hills, where Carrie Fisher's buried. So uh -huh. I want to go to Carrie Fisher's grave. 
The new book by Lauren Rhodes is 199 Cemeteries to See Before You Die. Thank you for joining me, Lauren. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.